Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Trevor Day. Trevor is an associate professor in the Department of Biology at Mount Royal University. He is here to speak about the effects of tilt, exercise, and high altitude on human cardiorespiratory and autonomic nervous systems. Let's jump in. Trevor, you made reference to acute mountain sickness. How do you watch for that, and did any of your group experience this in Nepal? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. It's something I alluded to along the way and something that you're, you know, sort of expecting and anticipating, but terrified of. Um, I know there's a slide we put in, Andy, if you could throw that up. Thanks. Um, this is a, a handout I made that's based upon um, the acute mountain sickness scores, the Lake Louise scoring system that was created uh, in, in the early 90s at the Lake Louise hypoxia meeting. Uh, I should say that we're rethinking this a little bit, and there's some questions about whether or not we should include sleeping difficulty as a part of the score which is why we've added up in different ways here. But I'll just mention some of the symptoms of acute mountain sickness. And the most common one is headache, uh, and our scale goes from zero to three. Again, not a very sharp knife. Gastrointestinal symptoms. Of course, if you're traveling a third world country, many people know you get traverse diarrhea. I've heard it said uh, that in Nepal, you either have traverse diarrhea or you're about to get traverse diarrhea, so it's one or the other. Um, and that's not what we're talking about here. This is uh, other gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, bad appetite, anorexia and so zero to three on that as well. And it's difficult to tease apart those two different things. And so that's why this instrument is really a self-reporting instrument. Uh, from there, we can move to fatigue or weakness. Uh, this is one I experience a lot, including lightheadedness and dizziness too. So zero to three on both of those scales. And then lastly, difficulty sleeping. I should say that everyone has sleep apnea up there to varying degrees. And so difficulty sleeping may not be a, a symptom of acute mountain sickness, but rather is just a normal part of acclimatizing and having cranked up carotid bodies of respiratory control. And so we're rethinking this, but this is a self-reporting scale. It's the best tool we have to get a sense for what, you know, what, how people are feeling as they ascend. Um, the score is out of 15. Anything over five is considered acute mountain sickness. And of course, it's a bit of a blunt instrument, but, uh, but it does give you a sense for how people are doing. We had uh, quite low numbers all the way up, and I'll tell you why in a second, at least why I think we did. And then at Gorik Shep and, uh, and uh, toward Everest Space Cabin back again, we had a couple people at sixes and we had one person that was on oxygen, that picture I showed you had an AMS score of eight. And so a couple of people did get it. You sort of see it coming. Uh, it, one of the big questions in high altitude physiology is why, who gets sick and why, we don't really know yet. And so that's some of the background of this that we're trying to sort out. But it's, uh, it's interesting because some people can get really sick and some people really don't. I think it's more important to think really about prevention. So things like ascending slowly, not exerting yourself too, mu too much. Uh, taking a rest day every two or three days to sleep at that altitude, doing acclimatizations coming up and back down to sleep lower, making sure your hydration is really good, making sure that you're eating a lot. And I really think if you take care of those things, uh, even without taking Diamox as a, as a prophylactic um, prevention, if you take care of things like exertion, sleeping well, uh, hydration, food, and not overexerting yourself, then uh, you can largely uh, eliminate or avoid some of these acute mass sickness symptoms. Perfect. That's a great answer. All right, uh, next question. Uh, what was the biggest challenge or hiccup that occurred on the EBC trek? And how did you adjust on the spot? Also, uh, specifically, what type of security and backup measures did you put in place for data storage? 
Yeah, so kind of a two-part question. I'll, I'll answer the first one first, the first one first, in terms of um, some hiccups. Uh, there's probably too many to mention, but it's just something you expect that things are going to go wrong, and you organize as best you can, and then you'll be prepared to be flexible, and that's really the best advice I can give. Uh, one of the major hiccups that hurt us in terms of the research was uh, one of our Pelican cases. Uh, you may have noticed that we had them locked when we left Calgary. Uh, that's a mistake and we had one of them labeled battery. We had a solar-powered battery we brought along just in case we needed some backup power. So we were trying to be prepared for that question of whether or not we had enough power. Um, we were able to buy it in the lodges in the end. It worked out fine. But, um, and so that Pelican case got hung up in Toronto uh, and uh, was not put on the next plane to Kathmandu. And thus, it was one of, the, uh, one of our five Pelican cases didn't show up. And in that Pelican case had the battery, which in the end we could do without, but had a, all of our respiratory gas lines and things like that. So any, if we wanted to do any, we put it all in one bag to make sure we knew where it was, and it was all in one Pelican case that didn't show up. So when we flew up to Lukla, we only had four of our cases. And so because Nima is such a star and is so well connected, our new guide, uh, he had someone meet the Pelican case two days after we left at the airport, because we got, finally got sent along with some lots of emails between myself and Air Canada while in Kathmandu. Um, lots of bags didn't show up either for people's clothing, but eventually they, they worked out. And then uh, grabbed the bag of respiratory gas lines and other things like that, uh, took it over to the municipal airport, had it flown up to Lukla, had a porter run down, meet, meet it at Lukla, grab it, and, and, and run, run up to Namche in a day, which usually takes us two days. So we had it that night in Namche. Too late for our daily measures, uh, rest or rest day measures that day. Uh, so we had all the respiratory stuff up higher. It didn't hurt the RSA studies, but it certainly hurt, uh, hurt bit many studies where we wanted to play with gases. Um, and so that was a major hiccup that we had to be really flexible around working around. Perfect. Very good. Um, you asked also about data security. I was so just going to say, yeah. Had, yeah, jump so into that. Well. that. Yeah, so in 2012 when I was there, um, we spent three weeks of 5,000 meters or so at the Italian Pyramid Lab, and we had lots of laptops, hard drives go down, and even, even USBs, like one terabyte USB storage um, hard drives go down as well. So it's just something probably to do with the atmospheric pressure that causes leaks and, um, and seals and, and hard drives go down. So we knew that, uh, and so we made sure we had lots of backup laptops. We and the software installed. We wanted to make sure we had lots and we had something like six external hard drives to backup data on. And a lot of our data was recorded in in paper binders in duo tags, so that we could write things down and enter them online afterward. And so between you know the data that we could, we'd write down with a pen, with a pen and paper, and data that we had to archive, say from from uh, from lab chart. We backed up multiple times on external hard drives, and we left all those laptops and hard drives in fair shape, 4,200 meters, to make sure that you know taking them up high needlessly would put them at risk of failing. So we did think ahead about that, and in the end, nothing failed uh, in terms of uh, computer hardware or software. Perfect. Very good. A question from Sarah Harding. Um, in your ascent-descent profile uh, in Nepal, it showed that uh, cetazolamide was taken. Yeah. Did all participants take a regular dose, and did that affect your measurements, results, or statistical analysis in any way? That's a really good question, Sarah. Um, it's something that we thought hard about. So I've got participants that are self-funding their, their way on this trip, and so I have to balance the needs of having a clean data set that's not confounded by lots of variables and uh, the safety of my participants. And so I decided this year that everyone was going to be on Dimox. Um, Everyone took it 125 milligrams twice per day, so 250 per day. That's the lowest prophylactic dose. So it was, a, it was a low dose, but everyone was on it the same amount all the way up. 
until we got to Gorak Shap and then we stopped, uh, stopped taking it. Uh, and so all of our ascent data is confounded by this drug that causes a metabolic acidosis, um, which is actually protective because it helps you breathe more and protects you against AMS to some degree. And that is a caveat with some of the data on this trip. I'm planning on going again next uh, May as well. Uh, and just in talking with other collaborators who have more experience with this than me, we think it's probably safe to ascend to Farishay without Dimox. And then as we go higher, we'll probably start it. Again, using all those sort of prevention measures like going slow, taking rest days, good nutrition, good hydration, minimizing your exertion. Uh, and those things, I think, are the big uh, risk factors. So uh, it is a caveat. But you know, the other thing about field work is you can't, there's things that you wish you could control that you would normally in the lab, but you can't in the field. You know, diet has changed, you're, you're jet lagged. Uh, half of you have Travis diarrhea, the other half will have it tomorrow. Uh, and so that causes an acid-base imbalance as well. So there's all kinds of caveats with this kind of work. And those are the choices you have to sort of make is, is balancing off um, your data and safety and feasibility of work. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.